Here's a few quick notes about the show. Southern Girl Crime Stories is a podcast focused mostly on lesser-known true crime cases, consisting of cold cases, soft cases, identified Jane and John Doe's, along with missing persons and murder victims. You can follow the show on social media, on Instagram at Southern Girl Crime Stories, on Twitter at SG Crime Stories, or search Facebook for Southern Girl Crime Stories. Please be sure to check out my YouTube channel for these stories along with photos of victims, suspects, locations of murders, and more. Deborah Lynn Randall was born in Georgia on August 21, 1962, and went by Debbie. At the age of nine, Debbie lived in Marietta, Georgia, and was a third grader at Pine Forest Elementary School. Debbie was called the queen of her neighborhood baseball team and loved playing with dolls. She also loved to collect soap boxes from the neighborhood laundromat. On January 13, 1972, Debbie's mother, Juanita Hooker, asked Debbie and her stepfather, Roy Hooker, who went by Frank, to go across the street to the Duds and Suds co-op laundromat to do some laundry. So at 7 p.m., they left the family's apartment at 727 First Street with the laundry and silver dust laundry detergent. Once there, Frank loaded the clothes into two washing machines and then handed the box of detergent and $1.30 in change to Debbie so she could operate the machines once those loads were done. After that, Frank went back across the street to the apartment, leaving Debbie alone inside the laundromat. At 7.15 p.m., Debbie left the laundromat to go home and asked for help with the laundry, but sadly, she never made it. When 7.30 p.m. rolled around and Debbie was still not home, Juanita and Frank became concerned and went straight to the laundromat. Once there, an employee told them that Debbie had left about 15 minutes ago. Upon searching outside, they found Debbie's spilled laundry detergent in the parking lot. By 9.40 p.m., when Debbie was still nowhere to be found, Juanita reported her missing. When investigators arrived, they found Debbie's fingerprints on the Volkswagen next to the spilled laundry detergent. It was clear that Debbie had been abducted, and 12-year-old Sandra Walker had unknowingly witnessed it. However, she didn't realize she witnessed an abduction until she saw Debbie's brother hanging missing flyers. She said a man pulled up in a dark 1950s pickup truck, forced Debbie inside, and then sped off. Unfortunately, Debbie was never seen alive again. Her mysterious disappearance prompted what would become known as Operation Debbie, mobilizing about 4,000 volunteers, ham radio operators, and local civil defense forces in a citywide search. Sixteen days later, her body was found by a group of Southern Tech students on a vacant piece of property 150 feet east of Powers Ferry Road and a thousand yards south of Windy Hill Road in Marietta, Georgia. She had been sexually assaulted and strangled to death. The suspect's hair was collected from Debbie's body along with a piece of cloth from the crime scene, and both were preserved. On Sunday morning, the day after her body was discovered, a man called into an Atlanta radio station and claimed that he was Debbie's murderer. However, the captain of the police dismissed it as a hoax. 
Then on April 18, 1972, David Theodore Drury walked into the Myrtle Beach Police Department in South Carolina and confessed to assaulting and killing Debbie. However, two days later, Drury tried to recant his confession, claiming he was drunk at the time, but police said he appeared perfectly sober and even gave vivid details of the crime. He was then given a polygraph test and eventually ruled out on April 23rd. It was determined that all the information he provided could be found in newspapers and on the news. Unfortunately, her case would go unsolved for the next 50 years. In 2001, the suspect's hair was sent off for forensic testing and ruled out multiple suspects. However, it didn't lead to her actual killer. Finally, in 2023, with the use of advanced DNA testing and genetic genealogy, detectives were able to identify the killer as William B. Rose of Mableton, Georgia. Rose was 24 years old at the time of the murder and was Debbie's neighbor. In 1974, two years after he murdered Debbie, he took his own life. It's thought that he was visiting with his own children at a nearby playground that night when he spotted Debbie walking alone. Not much else is known about Rose, but thankfully he did the world a favor. Heidi Marie Fergus was born on December 14, 1984. At the age of 25, Heidi lived with her husband of four years, Nick Fergus, in St. Paul, Minnesota. Heidi worked at Securian, a financial services company, while Nick was the director of operations for a carpet cleaning business. However, the couple was in financial trouble, and unbeknownst to Heidi, their home had been foreclosed on, and they were being evicted on April 26, 2010. The night before the eviction, on April 25, 2010, Heidi called 911 to report a break-in. During the 911 call, a gunshot was heard and the phone went silent. When authorities arrived, they found Nick with a gunshot wound to his leg and Heidi deceased. Nick then told police that he was fighting with the intruder when a shotgun was accidentally fired. He also informed investigators about their financial issues, including the foreclosure of their house. He told investigators that they planned to pack up the house on the 25th and 26th, but strangely, zero packing had been done. Investigators also realized that Nick had never informed Heidi of the foreclosure and eviction and never told friends and family. As he told investigators about the events leading up to Heidi's murder, investigators couldn't help but sense something was off about his story. First of all, there was no sign of a break-in, and the only DNA found on the shotgun belonged to Nick. He said he grabbed his gun, and he and Heidi tried to flee out the back door to the detached garage, but were stopped by the intruder, who he claimed was an unknown black man. According to Nick, the man grabbed the barrel of the gun, and Nick's finger slipped onto the trigger, causing it to go off twice, killing Heidi in the process. In a first for the police department, Nick hired his own sketch artist to draw the alleged suspect. The police then released the sketch to the public and received a tip about a man named Michael Pye. After getting a photo of Michael, they realized he bore a striking resemblance to the sketch. The only problem was, Michael was in jail at the time of the murder and couldn't have committed the crime. Mere months after Heidi's murder, Nick met Rachel Watson, 
and in August 2012, they were married and went on to have three kids. A few years later, Rachel would learn that her current home with Nick was also in foreclosure due to unpaid property taxes. That's when she began to suspect that Nick might have murdered Heidi. She even recorded a conversation with Nick where she called him out for his lies. I could get through this if it was just the lying. I really could. The problem is the Heidi stuff. That's my problem. The problem is I don't 100% believe you. I don't have words, Rach. It is too traumatic. And I don't know what else to tell you. The fact that you're lying was so easy for you to do in front of me over and over and over makes me think that I could murder my wife. That you could lie about something. That I could murder my wife. Yes. In 2018, Nick and Rachel's marriage ended, and three years later, in May 2021, Nick was arrested and charged with first and second degree murder. Apparently, Nick had staged the break-in and murdered Heidi to keep her from finding out about the foreclosure and eviction. On February 10th, 2023, Nick was found guilty of both murder charges and was sentenced to life in prison without the possibility of parole. As for the sketch of Michael Pye, Nick most likely found a mugshot of Michael and tried to frame him for murder, not realizing he was still in jail. If he had not been locked up at the time, there's a chance Nick would have gotten away with murder. Krista Martin was born on March 20th, 1969, and grew up in Hayesville, Kansas, and in 1987, she graduated from Campus High School. At the age of 20, Krista was living in an apartment at 506 South Osage Street in Wichita, Kansas, and had recently been laid off from her job at Kansas Blueprint. Despite her shy and quiet personality, she would sometimes visit local bars to socialize and then get a ride home with friends. On October 1, 1989, Krista spent the evening with friends at a club called Toto's. After returning home that night, she was never seen alive again. In the early hours of October 2, 1989, a friend of Krista's became concerned and went to check on her. Once he arrived at her apartment, he discovered Krista's body fully clothed on the couch. She had been sexually assaulted and died from blunt force trauma. Investigators didn't find any signs of forced entry, ruling out burglary as a possible motive. A neighbor of Krista's named Beverly Orth told investigators that a couple of weeks earlier, at about 3 or 4 a.m., she heard screaming and yelling outside. When she got up to look, she saw two men standing outside of Krista's apartment and then heard one of the men ask the other why he had hit her. The man responded, because she's a woman and deserved it. Investigators then theorized that the same man was possibly responsible for her murder. They also had to rule out Krista's friend since he was the one who found her body. He explained that his intuition is what led him to go check on her. Police initially found this suspicious, but they eventually ruled him out. Thankfully, the DNA from the crime scene was well-preserved, even though testing was not available at the time. Sadly, the case would go unsolved for the next 34 years. Over the years, multiple suspects submitted their DNA and were ruled out. 
Finally, in 2009, the Sedgwick County Regional Forensic Science Center was able to produce a potential profile of the suspect and uploaded it to CODIS, but there were no matches. In 2020, the samples were sent to Othram, who was able to perform advanced DNA testing. From this, a genetic genealogy team was able to produce the name of a potential suspect. A detective with the Wichita police, along with an FBI agent, followed up on the lead and determined in April 2023 that Paul Hart was the possible suspect. However, he died in a car accident in Memphis, Tennessee in March of 1999. So in June 2023, they traveled to Arkansas and collected a DNA sample from a direct relative of his. The results proved that Paul Hart was Krista's killer. Investigators determined that Hart lived only six houses away from Krista at the time of the murder. It remains unclear if Hart was the one who hit Krista two weeks before her murder. In 1994, 37-year-old Robin Orr Lawrence lived in the 8600 block of Rasika Lane in Springfield, Virginia with her husband, Ollie Lawrence, and their two-year-old daughter, Nicole. Robin had graduated from the Carnegie Mellon College of Fine Arts and worked as a graphic designer at Merchants Tire and Auto Centers. She worked her way up in the company and was eventually promoted to Director of Promotion and Merchandising. Ollie, on the other hand, worked for U.S. Air, where he had to travel regularly, even on the weekends, but would frequently call home to check on his family. On Friday, November 18, 1994, Ollie was in the Bahamas and called home around 6.30 p.m., but strangely, there was no answer. While this was unusual, he wasn't initially worried and figured Robin was busy with their toddler and decided to try again. However, by the next evening, when she still wasn't answering, Ollie called a friend and asked them to go check on her and Nicole. Inside, they found Robin stabbed to death and two-year-old Nicole roaming the house. She had been left to fend for herself for two whole days. Once an investigation began, Ollie was an immediate suspect, even though he had a solid alibi. Thankfully, they were able to collect DNA from the crime scene, but at the time, it couldn't be matched to anyone. With very few leads in the case, Robin's murder would go unsolved for the next 30 years. In 2019, a sample of DNA from the crime scene was sent off to Parabon Nanolabs, who were able to create a facial reconstruction of the suspect. The reconstruction looked almost identical to a man named Stephen Smirk, who was already in the case file. Investigators then obtained a high school yearbook and DMV photo of Smirk from the 1990s, and with a strong resemblance, they decided to investigate him further. So they traveled to Smirk's home in Niskayuna, New York, where they found him taking out the trash. They approached him and asked for a DNA swab, and he gave it without hesitation. It wasn't long after the detectives left that Smirk called them and wanted to talk. He then turned himself in and confessed to Robin's murder and even gave never-before-released details. At the time of the murder, he was in the Army, stationed at the Fort Myer base in Northern Virginia. He also has no prior arrest record and is not a suspect in any other crimes. Police could not find a connection between him and Robin, and Smirk never gave a motive for the crime, but it's theorized that he sadly chose Robin at random. 
Her daughter and husband were surprised that the case was finally solved after all these years, but are glad to have some long-awaited closure. In 1994, 47-year-old Sarah Roberts and her adult daughter, Sharon Roberts, lived in the Grant House's apartments at 550 West 125th Street in Harlem, New York City. On February 20, 1994, Sharon's home care assistant, Celeste Cornelius, grew concerned after not being able to reach either of the women by telephone. So, at 10.15 p.m., she decided to go into the apartment to check on them. When she got there, she found the front door unlocked with no sign of forced entry. Once inside, she discovered Sarah and Sharon's deceased bodies. They had been strangled to death using the tubing from Sarah's oxygen machine and a wool sock. Missing from the apartment was a cassette video recorder and several hundred dollars in cash. Unfortunately, the case would go unsolved for nearly 30 years. In 2022, an NYPD detective decided to revisit the cold case and resubmitted the evidence for DNA testing. Soon after, DNA evidence from cigarette butts and nail clippings identified their killer as 64-year-old Larry Atkinson, who was dating Celeste at the time. He was also the neighbor of Sarah and Sharon. Atkinson is an ex-con with three aliases and 28 prior arrests, including drug sales, attempted robbery, and assault. The motive for the double homicide is unclear, but they believe burglary was the main motive. Prior to the murders, a burglary had taken place in the same building the previous December. During that burglary, Sarah and Sharon's apartment was partially ransacked. Atkinson was most likely aware that Sarah kept cash on her to pay for the home care and other expenses. After the identification, Atkinson was arrested and charged with two counts of second-degree murder. All these years later, he was still living with Celeste 13 blocks from the crime scene. Thanks for joining me today on Southern Girl Crime Stories. Please be sure to check out my YouTube channel for these stories, along with photos of victims, suspects, location of murders, and more. As always, your support is very much appreciated, and I look forward to seeing y'all next time.